greets with a heavy heart, I announce that we are in week 12 of our series of Mark's Gospel account called The Way of Jesus. It means we only got two, two weeks left, so we are rapidly um, bringing this series in for a landing. As we said each week, if, if you're here for the first time, the idea behind this series, we wanted to, to walk through Mark's Gospel because there's a, there's a tendency in all of us to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and kind of emphasize the parts that we like and, and, and cut out or ignore the parts of him, the teachings of him, the sides of him that we don't like. And what we're left with then is, is what you could call a Jesus created in our image. Remarkably easy Jesus to follow. The problem is that Jesus does not have the power to change us or heal us in any of the ways that we know we need to be changed and healed because he's not real. He's just a projection of ourselves. And so what you and I need more than anything else if we want to be transformed by Jesus, this is about as fundamental as it gets, is the real Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. That's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. So today we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. I'll be in Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 2, and we're going to go all the way to 29. It says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. The only thing... He- <laughs> The only thing worse than being so terrified you can't speak is being terrified and then just speaking, not knowing what you're saying. That's what happened to poor Peter there. Verse 7, a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Mm. (laughs) Make you sit up straight. Uh, Then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they began to question him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores everything, Jesus replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it's written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it's thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out with what is perhaps the most honest statement any human being has ever uttered as recorded in Scripture. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that was enough for Jesus. One of the most encouraging things about this story. 
When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This is God's word. Now, I read you two different accounts there. But the, uh, the first account that we're going to spend most of our time in this morning is what's known as, as the Transfiguration. It's a remarkable moment that, that really does mark um, the exact middle of Jesus' ministry. Uh, from here, the whole tone, if you keep reading through Mark's gospel account, the whole tone changes and the long journey to the cross begins. And so what I want to do is spend some time in, in the Transfiguration and ask really three questions of it. Um, first off, what exactly is it? What's happening here that we're supposed to see? Why was it recorded in Scripture? What is the transfiguration? Uh, Secondly, why it matters for us? And then thirdly, why and how we can experience something even greater than Peter, James, and John experienced in this story. First off, what, what exactly is the transfiguration? How should we understand this? The transfiguration at its core is, a, is an experience of worship that Peter, James, and John had where they came to personally experience two things about Jesus that, that they might have known intellectually before this, but during the transfiguration, what they knew intellectually became real to them existentially. The two things that the transfiguration shows them about Jesus, that it shows us about Jesus, we'll walk through both of these, is first off that Jesus is the supreme object of worship And number two, he's also the means by which we can experience life-changing worship ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. Basically, every commentator reflecting on the transfiguration points out that this account is a recapitulation of something that happened centuries before this when God's presence descended on another mountain called Sinai in the book of Exodus when God was leading his people out of the nation of Egypt and really... Um, developing an identity for them as God's chosen people. If you go back to that account in Exodus, you'll find all the same elements there that are in this story. God's presence comes down on this mountain in a cloud. His voice speaks from that cloud. You have the, um, the glory of God begins to manifest itself such that Moses, who was called up into the presence of God, is so profoundly impacted by the glory of God that his face shines for days afterwards. He actually had to wear a veil to hide his face from the rest of the nation of Israel because of how profoundly he was impacted by simply getting near the presence of the glory of God. Now, here in Mark's gospel account, you have all those same elements. You have um, God's presence once more descending in a cloud on a mountain. His voice is speaking from that cloud. You have the the concept of God's bright and dazzling, whiter-than-white glory that we don't even really have a category for. And even Moses is back here again, so you, you really can't deny the parallels. But there's one incredibly important difference. The difference is back in Exodus, Moses reflected the glory of God. Here in Mark's gospel, Jesus is the source of the glory of God. What this is getting across is that Jesus is not just another great historical teacher or prophet like Moses and Elijah that that reflects the glory of God. Jesus is actually the glory of God in the flesh. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us when he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact expression of God's nature. That's what I mean when I say Jesus is the object, the supreme object of worship. But building off of that, the transfiguration also shows us that Jesus at the same time is the means by which you and I can experience life-changing worship. So in this story, uh, Peter was, we're told he was so terrified, he, he, words were just kind of falling out of his mouth as the, the presence of God, the glory of God began to manifest itself around. And it really what it did is it enveloped Peter, James, and John. And, and out of his terror, he comes up with this idea that sounds really strange to us, uh, he wanted to put up three tabernacles. And I've heard lots of different explanations for why that is. It's just a very strange-sounding thing for modern people. For, for Mark's original readers, however, that wasn't strange at all. That made perfect sense to them. Because all ancient people understood something that, that we modern people really have difficulty grasping. All ancient people basically understood, first and foremost, that there is an infinite gap between deity and humanity. All ancient people understood that, that human beings don't just waltz into the presence of God. We're not ready for that. That's why every single religion in history has all had uh, temples and tabernacles and priests and sacrificial systems and rites and rituals that you need to perform that are all basically designed. I mean, the purpose of all those, if you just zoom out, they're all basically designed to protect you from the presence of God by getting you ready to enter it. Every religion... I mean, really, zoom out to Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, whatever it is, all religion is built on this idea uh, that, that we're not, we, there's things that need to happen in order to get us ready to enter into the presence of the divine. So when, when Peter comes up with his tabernacle idea here, what he's basically saying is just what all ancient people have always understood. He's saying, hey, listen, we need something to protect us. We need some kind of tabernacle. We need something that can get between us and the manifest presence and glory of God, or we're not something that can mediate that presence for us and get us ready for it and protect us from it, or we're not going to live to tell a tale of what happens on this mountain. But then af after this, if you keep reading through the transfiguration, you read something that all of Mark's original readers, especially his Jewish readers, would have found absolutely shocking, unlike anything they'd ever read before. What they read is that this, this manifest presence of God, the glory of God, begins to descend on Peter, James, and John, and they're fine. They, they all live to tell the tale, meaning Peter stands in the presence of God himself, and he's fine. That's, that's the same Peter. This might sound funny, but it's, it's worth noting. This is the same Peter that a couple of verses ago, Jesus looked at him and called him Satan. That Peter just found himself in the middle, enveloped by the presence of God, and he was not completely blown apart by the experience. And everybody reading Mark's gospel account would have been asking themselves, how on earth is that possible? And the answer comes in verse 8. It says, then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. Now what that is, that's Mark's way of saying in the strongest possible terms that when you are with Jesus, or maybe better said, when Jesus is with you, there's no need for a temple or a tabernacle or a priest or a sacrifice. There's no need for you to go through rites and rituals to make yourself ready for the presence of God. Because when you are with Jesus, 
the presence and glory of God, which in and of ourselves we should be terrified of, that very same presence of God when we are with Jesus actually has the, it just transforms us. That's exactly what happened to the men on the mountain. Because when you zoom out from this story, it, it, it's not like, uh, you know, they barely got out of there with their lives. What happened is they had an experience that changed their lives. Because when they were caught up in the middle of this experience, what they heard was the voice of God the Father declaring his love for his son Jesus. So just think about it this way. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, what they, what, what they experienced, they got a glimpse behind the scenes into the heart of God himself. They actually got to see into the, the relationship that is itself the foundation of our entire reality. They got to see behind the scenes into the image of the God in whose image we have been made. There's nothing more life-changing than that because that is at bottom what every single human heart and all of our experiences, that's what we're actually looking for. That's what we're actually longing for. That's what we're actually made for. I don't know of anybody that put this idea um, more succinctly and skillfully than C.S. Lewis in his, his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, the sense that in the universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but I love the way he phrases this, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So you zoom out from the transfiguration, what happens here is the disciples have this worship experience where the presence of God envelops them and they begin to get a glimpse of what Lewis says, whether we recognize it or not, we're all searching for and we will never be satisfied apart from. And so the transfiguration is showing us first that Jesus is the object of worship, but he's also the means in which we can experience life-changing worship. That's what the transfiguration is. Now the question that I would have if I was listening to this is, hey, that's fascinating. That's interesting. You know, I've never thought about those details and all that kind of stuff. But the question is, what does that mean for us today? The Bible itself claims, Paul writing to Timothy said, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Meaning there's nothing recorded in this book that is not meant to immediately prepare us for what we face in our day-to-day -day lives. So the question is, what does this experience that three men had with Jesus 2,000 years ago, how does that help me in my marriage today? How does that help me with my children today? How does that help me in my career? How does that help me in my, my habits, my hang-ups, my addictions, my problems, my anxiety today? And I think this is one of the most relevant passages possible for the problems that you and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, to explain what I mean there, um, one of the reasons I read this little story 
that immediately takes place after the transfiguration. I'm not going to walk through it. We don't have the time to get into all the details. But the reason I wanted to, to read these two stories back to back the way that Mark records them is because when you put them together, something of real value is communicated to us. So what you have here is the disciples have this, literally, they have a mountaintop experience with God. And immediately after that, I mean, Mark records no break in them coming down this mountain before they are immediately afterwards plunged into this situation where there's confusion, they're overwhelmed by evil, and they're up against problems that they have no strength to overcome in and of their own power. All right, so so literally these people go right from the peak into the valley. And this is Mark's way of telling us something incredibly important just about life. The idea here is that the mountaintop experiences that you and I have with God, where, where his manifest presence becomes so real to us that it begins to heal us, it begins to comfort us, it begins to be more than just an intellectual thing, those experiences are, are great, those experiences are important, those experiences are necessary, but we can't live in those experiences. And as much as we would love to set up shop, as much as we would love to set up a tabernacle and stay there, we can't. Because life, especially for Jesus followers, Jesus just said this last week, what life is at the end of the day, it's a journey to the cross. And even if you're not a Jesus follower, Jesus promised in this world you're going to have trouble. He didn't say if you follow me, you're going to have trouble. It's just if you're turning oxygen into carbon dioxide for any length of time, life is a journey in which you and I are likely to regularly and routinely experience situations exactly like the disciples found themselves in here. Situations in which there's confusion and there's turmoil and we feel like our faith isn't working and we're wondering why God isn't showing up the way that we expect him to. That's exactly what the disciples were going through here. And we're, we're, we're face-to-face with problems that we don't have any answers for. All right, now, now, this concept, while it might not be the most encouraging to hear on Sunday morning, it's incredibly valuable because it just prepares us for the reality of life. What that means is, is, is that if you're here this morning and you can look back on your life, and maybe it wasn't even very long ago, that you yourself had a kind of a mountaintop experience with God, and now you're not on the mountain anymore. Now you're in the valley. Now you're in a situation like this. This story is God's way of telling you nothing weird is happening to you. That is no cause for alarm in and of itself. Because if that happened, if, that, if, if, if situations like that were the case for people that literally hung out with the Son of God, then it shouldn't surprise us when our lives turn out that way frequently as well. But even beyond that, what, what, what this passage is telling us is that while we can't stay in those mountaintop experiences, it'd be great if we could, but while we can't stay there, those experiences are necessary for getting us ready for the valleys of life. Those experiences where the truth about who God is and what he's done and what it means for us, where those experiences come home and actually begin to carry us through life, they begin to change our affections, where the intellectual becomes deeply personal, we need those experiences if we're going to walk through the valley in a way that, that we don't succumb to despair. So here's the question. Here's the question for me. Is there anything that we can do to put ourselves in a position where we can experience God like this? And the unequivocal answer, not just of the transfiguration, but of Scripture as a whole, is yes. And, and what I want to do with the remaining time that we have is talk about what we can do to put ourselves in a position to experience God like this. Before we get into it, I just want to be crystal clear, because this kind of teaching can get misconstrued and be really damaging. I'm not saying 
that there are techniques that we can employ so that, you know, when we hit the right buttons in the right sequence, we can guarantee a dopamine hit from our relationship with God. Of course it doesn't work like that because no relationship works like that. But according to this passage and all of Scripture, there absolutely are things that you and I can do to put ourselves in a position where we are likely to encounter God in a way that changes us and prepares us for the valleys of life, valleys that probably more than a few of you are going through right now. So with the remainder of the time that we have left, I want to give you three things based on the account of the transfiguration that you and I can do to put ourselves in that position. First off, what the transfiguration is showing us is that if we want to encounter God in a life-changing way, the transfiguration shows us, number one, we have to approach God in prayer. Doesn't get a whole lot more simple than that, but let me walk through this. If you were here last week, you remember that, that Peter and Jesus had what is maybe one of the most famous exchanges in Scripture, where Jesus asks Peter the most important question any of us are ever going to be asked and answer, the question that all of us eventually have to answer. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. Peter said, you are the Messiah. Now, here's what that means. Here's what that means. Prior to, prior to the transfiguration, Peter knew who Jesus was intellectually. But follow me here, it was not until the moment of the transfiguration that Peter knew what he knew about Jesus existentially. And I just want to offer to you, most of us live the majority of our lives in that weird space. And actually, I can prove this to you by making us all really uncomfortable, which what's preaching if it doesn't make people uncomfortable. I'm going to go out on a limb And of course, nobody can really know another person's state, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of the people that listen to this teaching in person and online and in the future, most of you are actually Christians. As Christians, you believe at least the following two statements. Number one, the Lord of the universe thought it was worth his time to enter into human history and take on the agony of the cross because you were worth it to him. Getting you back and having you in a relationship with him was worth it. You believe that if you're a Christian. Number two, you also believe further that because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, God the Father, who will stand as judge over all creation, meaning God the Father, whose opinion ultimately is the only opinion of you that matters, you believe if you're a Christian that God the Father, because of your relationship with Jesus, He delights in you. You bring him joy if you believe what Scripture says. If you believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, you believe both of those things. So here's the question. If you believe those things, here's the uncomfortable part. Let's just go through a series of questions, and I'll make them all personal. I've had the, the fun privilege of asking myself these questions this week. Now I get to bring you in on the misery. If you believe those two things that I just walked you through, why does criticism bother you as much as it does? If you believe the two things that I just said, why do you find it so difficult to look the people closest to you in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, without any conditions or qualifiers? Why does that feel like a death to you? If if you believe the two things that I walked through earlier, why are you so anxious all the time about something? And if you're not anxious about something, you're anxious about the fact that you've forgotten to be anxious about something. 
whether it's your future or your finances or your image or just this nagging, looming despair that maybe my life isn't going to turn out the way that I know the way it's supposed to turn out. Why, does that, why do the things that happen around us have so much control over us to the point that it's almost like we only have permission to have peace if we're perfectly in control of everything in our life and everything's going perfectly, which, spoiler alert, never seems to happen, and it, and it never will. <laughs> the answer to all of those questions and countless more that I could substitute there, it, it all boils down to this. It's because we live most of our lives where Peter was between the end of Mark 8 and the beginning of Mark 9 where what we know intellectually, we still do not know existentially. So what that means is, is, is we need something more than more information. We need something more than another sermon. We need something more than another Bible study. What we need, according to the transfiguration, is for the glory of God to descend into our lives. And in the Old Testament, the word that gets translated glory, uh, this was so really eye-opening to me the first time I understood this, The Hebrew word in the Old Testament that gets translated in our our English word glory, all it means is weight. That's all it means. So when you talk about what's the glory of God, biblically speaking, when the glory of God begins to descend on you, all that means is that in that moment, and and if if you've been following Jesus, you have probably experienced this at some point in your life. When the glory of God begins to descend on you, what that means is that what God has to say about you begins to carry more weight than what anybody else says about you and even what you say about yourself. Scripture says our hearts condemn us. When the glory of God descends on you, what he says is true about you outweighs what your own heart tells you about you. It's those moments in life where the love that God has for you becomes so real that it frees you from being controlled by everything going on around you. And I'll just say, every single person on the planet wants that. The question is, how do you get there? And believe it or not, there's an answer here. If you read the account of the transfiguration in Luke's gospel account, the transfiguration is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you read Luke's account of the transfiguration, he includes a detail on the very front end that Mark doesn't include here. He tells us that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to that mountain, he did not take them up there just to go camping or to get exercise or to spend time together, whatever. They went up there for one specific reason. They went up there specifically to pray. That is, the, that is the stated and singular reason that they went up there to begin with. So, it, again, I would be thinking, okay, the pastor says pray if you want to experience God. Really break a new ground up there. But just please consider this. By this point in Jesus' ministry, just think about everything that he'd done. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he's healed leprosy. He's calmed a storm. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. That means that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was denied any kind of real privacy. And so were all of his disciples. We see that literally when they're coming down the mountain. Everywhere they go, they are being mobbed. Everywhere they go, they're having all of these demands. Listen to me. Everywhere the disciples went by this point in their lives, they had other people telling them how they should be spending their time. That sound familiar? Everywhere they went, they found no shortage of demands on their time, attention, and energy. Can anybody living in the 21st century relate to how the disciples felt in Mark chapter 9? Here's how, I love the way, I've been quoting this book a lot to you. This is Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser. Here's how he explained it. He said, electronic communication has radically changed our lives. While it's made our lives wonderfully efficient, it also demands our attention 24 hours a day. Already in the 13th century, 
The poet Rumi complained about having to be available all the time, saying, quote, I have lived too long where I can be reached, end quote. How much truer is that today in an age of information technology? We can all be reached all the time. There never needs to be any silence and solitude in our lives. And so we end up, listen how, we, how, how he describes people here. He says, and so we end up as good people, but as people who are not very deep. Not bad, just busy. Not immoral, just distracted. Not lacking in soul, just preoccupied. Not disdaining depth, just never doing the things to get us there. I think that is the great temptation in your and my life today. And by this point in the disciples' lives, it was their temptation. But what you're seeing here is that they had a life-changing encounter with Jesus only when they were willing to follow Jesus away from the crowds, away from the noise, away from the daily demands on their time, attention, and energy. And so the first lesson that the transfiguration offers us as people today, I don't know if this has ever been more relevant than it is, is, is that those life-changing encounters with God, more often than not, they happen when you and I make a deliberate and conscious decision to separate ourselves from our daily routines and pursue God in prayer with a posture of heart that says, Father, I know all kinds of things about you, but I need something more than that. I need to know you. I need your reality to descend on me and inform and transform my reality. Would you make yourself real to me? That's what it means to approach God in prayer. That's the first thing. The second thing the transfiguration shows us if we want to have a life-changing encounter with God is not just approach him in prayer, but number two, approach in community. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I touched on it a few weeks ago, but, but living in a culture as individualistic as ours there's a tendency in all of us, we want to try to reduce Christianity to, to, to God just giving us our own private and daily dose of inspiration. Just us and God. And even to people who would say, well, I don't fall into that category. I really desire community. I, I want those deep relationships, which to, agree, to a degree I would say we all do because Scripture says we're relational creatures designed in the image of, of a relational God. But even to people who say, I really want deep community, the problem is we all quickly find we're allergic to the things that community actually costs us. You know, in order to have deep and life-changing relationships with other people who are seeking God alongside us, that requires things like vulnerability and transparency and accountability and commitment and narrowing, deliberately narrowing our options and deciding I'm going to put my roots down here instead of the infinite number of other places where I could put my roots down. And so my, my point is all of us, we all want the mountaintop experience. We just want it to be us and God. The problem with that is that Jesus did not lead an individual up this mountain. He led a group. You could arguably call it the greatest small group in history. And what happens at the end of this group in verse cha uh, chapter 10, rather, verse 10, actually, is we're told that in the wake of what they saw and heard, it says Peter, James, and John, they discussed what they experienced among themselves. The idea that Mark's getting across here is that if you want to experience the presence of God in a way that truly alters you, changes you, heals you, transforms you, and you want to understand what God is doing in this world, and you want to understand what God is doing in your life, then you're going to need to not only approach God in prayer personally, but you're going to need to approach him alongside other people who are as hungry for an encounter with God as you are. Number two, we need to approach him in community. 
But the third and the final lesson that transfiguration offers us, and we'll, this will be our last idea today, is that if we, wanna, if we want to encounter God in a way that changes us, number three, we have to approach in surrender. <clears throat> when God spoke from the, from the cloud that day to Peter, James, and John, all he says, and I love the simplicity here, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so, so here's, the, here's the super complicated idea. If you want to be transformed by Jesus, listen to him. I, I, don't know that it, I don't know that it can get any simpler than that. But let me, just, let me offer something to you that I see in myself and that I have heard more than a few times in meeting with people one-on-one as a pastor over the last 10 years. Maybe what I'm about to say is going to hit home for somebody. Maybe it'll even answer a question that you've had. Over the years, when I have met with people one-on-one, people who had a genuine desire to know and do the will of God, to surrender themselves to God, once we get to this concept, if you want to be transformed by Jesus, listen to Jesus. Over the years, I've heard people over and over go back to this idea that that basically, hey, I would love to listen to Jesus. I just don't know what he's saying. If I knew what Jesus was saying to me, the way that those disciples did or the way that it worked in the book of Acts or whatever it was, I, I would, I'm so willing to listen to Jesus. I just don't know what he's saying. And what I've found is that more often than not, when somebody says that, what they really mean, and I would just ask you, search your own heart and see if this does not exist in you. More often than not, when people say that, what they mean is, They want God to give them the 5, 10, 15, 30-year plan for their life. And what they've done is they've basically put themselves in the position where they're God's supervisor, and they want God to put together a PowerPoint presentation of what their life is going to look like for their consideration and final approval so that I can decide if I like it, then I'll surrender to it. There's this thing in the human heart that says, God, if you would just let me know, then I'll surrender. The problem is... The only way God ever works, according to my understanding of how he works in this book, when we say, God, if you would just let me know, I'll surrender, God always answers by saying, no, no, you surrender and I'll let you know. Let's go to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and here's what God does not do. God does not give Abraham a map to the land of Canaan and say, hey, in 25 years, I'm going to give you a son named Isaac. A few years after that, I'm going to ask you to be willing to give that son back to me by sacrificing him on a mountain called Moriah, but don't worry, I'll step in the last minute and save him, and it's going to go great, and you'll live happily ever after. He didn't do that. God did not tell Abraham what the next 30 years of his life would look like. He didn't even tell him what the next 30 seconds of his life would look like. He just said, start walking. And to me, I was telling the 9 a.m., one of the most amazing verses in the first time I read this, this was so eye-opening to me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, speaking about Abraham, says that Abraham set out, watch this, he set out not knowing where he was going. That has always raised so many questions for me because Abraham was 75 years old, not exactly a spring chicken, and all of his neighbors at 75, just, you know this happened, it had to happen. All of his neighbors at 75 years old would have seen him packing up everything one day, and you know this conversation took place. Somebody walked over to Abraham and said, hey, man, what are you doing? And he said, moving. What's the next logical question? Where are you moving, Abraham? And Abraham's got to say, I don't know. And then, okay, well, who told you that this was a good idea, Abraham? Watch this. Abraham would say, God? Question mark. And they would say, 
who's God, Abraham? And he would say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And the story of Abraham's life is the story of a man who found out. Not before he committed, but after he committed. And it's no different than the disciples here. At this point in the disciples' lives, the rest of Mark's gospel account bears this out. The disciples had no idea what God's plan for their lives were. That's why they, they were completely blindsided by the crucifixion. None of the disciples of Jesus were celebrating when Jesus hung on a cross, saying, finally the plans come to fruition. We got the devil right where we want him. All of them were blindsided by the cross. They were equally blindsided by the resurrection. They didn't recognize Jesus at first. Some of them are doubting that that could possibly happen. They had no idea the role that they would play in the early church or how their lives would shake out as they followed Jesus. The only thing they knew, just consider this, because I think you're more like the disciples than maybe you realized. The only thing the disciples knew when they heard the voice of God the Father say, listen to Jesus, the only thing they knew is what Jesus had commanded them just a few verses prior to this. That if they wanted to follow Jesus, they were to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. And based on my very limited understanding of God, that's usually all he gives us in the moment. The idea here is that God's revelation of who he is and you're in my life is directly tied to our willingness to surrender even before we know the plan. So to anybody listening to this that would say, I would love to listen to Jesus. I just don't know what he's telling me to do. If I can lovingly push back on you, I would say, I do know what Jesus is telling you to do. He's telling you and I and the disciples and anyone who ever dares to follow him the same thing. He's calling us right here and right now in our marriages, in our personal lives, in our finances, in our sexuality, in our whatever Apply it across the board in your life. He's calling us right now to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow him. That that means trusting Jesus enough to to let go of the white knuckle grip we have on our lives. Trust Jesus enough to get us out of the center of our lives and follow him, even though we have no idea where he might take us or what it might cost us. Elizabeth Elliot put this in a way, I, I, I found this quote three years ago. Speaking of the guidance of God, this is a woman who lost her husband in his obedience to God. She said, the more we pay for advice, the more likely we are to listen to it. Advice from a friend, which is free, we may take or leave. Everybody knows that. Advice from a consultant, we have paid much for personally. We're more likely to accept, but it's still our choice. We can take it or leave it. But this is, I mean, this is, the, this is the, what I'm about to read to you. This is the kind of wisdom that I'm afraid only suffering can teach a human being. She says, the guidance of God is different. First of all, we do not come to God asking for advice, but for God's will. And that is not optional. And God's fee is the highest one of all. It costs everything. To ask for the guidance of God requires abandonment. We no longer say, if I trust you, you'll give me such and such. Instead, we must say, and this is where I've been going with this whole idea. Instead, we must say, I trust you. Give me or withhold from me whatever you choose. As John Newton says, what you will, when you will, how you will. This is talking about coming before Jesus with a posture of heart that says, from this moment on, I will obey anything you tell me and I will accept anything you send me, whether I understand it or not. That's what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. That's what it means to listen to Jesus. That and nothing less 
is the price that must be paid if you and I want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, that sounds a little bit more complicated than just listen to him. So the question is, I end every teaching the same way so you know where I'm going with this, how on earth can you and I trust Jesus like that? To take ourselves out the driver's seat of our own lives and, and trust Jesus the way that Scripture, the way that Jesus himself calls us to. And here's the answer. I came across this this week. Commentators point out that when Jesus, when, when God the Father speaks over Jesus the Son here, we're almost done, so please lean into this last part. When God the Father speaks over Jesus, if you followed along in this series, you may have picked up, he says the same thing that he said at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So there's like a, a certain rhythm here. All the way back in Mark chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, which marked the beginning of his public ministry, God the Father shows up and he speaks words of love over his son. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here we are at the very middle of Jesus' ministry, and sure enough, God is saying the same thing over his son. Some commentators speculate that this is essentially God fueling Jesus with his love for Jesus to get ready for all that lie ahead of him, the road to the cross. And so here's what you would think. Try to read this account like you've never heard it before, like you were Mark's original readers, and here's what we would all be thinking. Okay, if that happened at the beginning and at the middle of Jesus' ministry, then that's how his ministry is going to end. But what, what you would find, to your shock and amazement, just like the disciples themselves found, is that that is not how the story of Jesus' life ends. You, you, you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, and what you'll find is that he's, he's, he's sort of having an encounter with God because he's praying, and he's in a garden, but he's on his knees. And he's, he's under so much duress that Luke records his sweat was becoming like drops of blood. He's talking about this cup, and he's asking God if there's any way for him to, to save us without the cross. But then at the end of that prayer, Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and almost immediately at the conclusion of that prayer, Jesus is kidnapped by this midnight mob. There's this complete miscarriage of justice. He's blindfolded and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and spit on. And then he's tortured by Rome. He's stripped naked. He's humiliated. He's nailed to a Roman cross. And the whole time you'd be thinking, okay, but God's right around the corner. God's going to show up. And he doesn't. There is silence coming from God the Father. And instead, what we have on the cross is Jesus the Son is calling out to his Father, but he can't even address him as Father anymore. He just says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Still no answer, and Jesus dies. And what is happening on the cross there, that none of the disciples understood, that we can only understand in hindsight, is that Jesus, you've heard me say this before, I'm just going to keep saying it because I need to hear it again. Jesus was being kicked out of his father's family to make room for you and I. That's what was happening on the cross. What you're seeing at Calvary, the essence of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, put his life in the hands of the Father knowing it would lead to his destruction so that you and I could put our hands, our lives in the hands of Jesus knowing it would lead to our salvation. That's how you learn to listen to Jesus because whatever he calls you to, to walk through, even if you don't understand it, you go back to what Jesus did and you teach your heart the lesson that I don't have to understand what he's walking me through now because if he went through all of that for me, I know he loves me. And even if I don't get it now, a God that went through all of that for me has to have my best interest in mind. I can trust him. And the promise of the gospel is that when we finally come to the end of ourselves, 
and we give our lives to Jesus. We, we admit that we need a Savior, and we trust in Jesus to be that Savior. And we come before God the Father, and we say, Father, accept me not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what your Son has done. Not on the basis of what's in my heart, but on the basis of what's in your heart. What happens in that moment is we get to experience something infinitely greater than what Peter, James, and John experienced that day on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because what happened to them that day, they got as, as spectators... They got a glimpse into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. They got to see it outside looking in. But when you give your life to Jesus, you don't just get a glimpse into that relationship. You become a part of it. You are welcomed into it. That means that in Christ, God loves you exactly as much as though you were Jesus. He treats you as though you've lived the life that Jesus lived, and he pronounces the same blessing over you that he pronounced over his son at the Mount of Transfiguration. And you and I need to hear that more than we need to hear anything else. I got one last quote for you. We're done. I'm gonna call the worship team up and we'll close with this. <clears throat> Again, from this book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser says, you must try to pray so that in your prayer, you open yourself up in such a way that sometime, perhaps not today, but sometime, you are able to hear God say, I love you. These words addressed to you by God are the most important words you will ever hear because before you hear them, nothing is ever completely right with you. But after you hear them, something will be right in your life at a very deep level. In the end, that is what we're all looking for and most need. It is what gives us substance, identity, and justification beyond our own efforts to make ourselves lovable, worthwhile, and immortal. Nothing will heal us more of restlessness, bitterness, and insecurity than to hear God say, I love you. Now, I'm not sure what you bring to the table this morning, but I am convinced that what I just read to you is the answer. It is the answer that will heal you of the deep wounds that otherwise will remain unhealed, it will bring peace and calm and rest that your soul so desperately needs. And it is the answer that will transform you not only into the person that God wants you to be, but that you yourself want to be. And so I'll end with this. Let's be a community of people that approach God in prayer, approach God in community, and approach God in surrender knowing, moving through life with confidence that a life-changing encounter with our Creator is available to us because of what God the Son, Jesus Christ, did for us. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, there's probably more than a few of us this morning, myself included, that need to be reminded of what is actually available to us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And I'm willing to bet, God, that there are so many people listening to this that they didn't really hear a whole lot of new information today. We just need to believe what we know more deeply. We need to experience what we know intellectually in a deeply personal and existential way. God, would you make today the day that that happens? We need something more than just knowing about you. We need to know you in a way that that moves us. We need your glory to descend on our lives and in our hearts so that what you say carries more weight than anything else. 
so that your love becomes the driving force, the fuel, the operative principle in our life that transforms us over and over again. I just pray, God, today would be the day that somebody would have that experience either for the very first time or at least for the next time because it's those moments that carry us through the valleys of life. Please let today be that day for us. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things with nothing but hope. All God's people said, amen.